I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is New York Times book review editor, Pamela Paul. Her new book is How to Raise a Reader. Well, her new book is How to Raise a Reader and How Do You Raise a Reader? How do you raise a reader in this ever-changing world of technology, devices, and other distractions? Screen time may be often more appealing than reading time for a child. But with reading known to be so important, how can a parent encourage kids to make it a priority? Reading can be a source of stress for parents. Which book should I read to my baby? How early? Is my child reading soon enough, fast enough, in an advanced enough way? Pamela Paul answers these urgent questions with practical tips, strategies that work, been there, wisdom, and inspirational advice. She oversees book coverage at the New York Times and hosts a weekly New York Times book review podcast. Her work has appeared in the Atlantic, Washington Post, New York Times Magazine, and many more. Welcome to the show, Pamela. Nice to have you on today. So glad to be here. Thanks for having me. All right. We're going to be talking about how to raise a reader, um, which I guess is a real challenge, as you said, as you say in your book today, because with the digital, in the digital age, the kids, and I've had experience with my very young grandchildren, they want to go straight to the iPhone, they want to go straight to the iPad, parents read to them, try to balance it out, but somehow it's always an issue. So, and as you say, reading then can be really a great source of stress for parents. So how do we sort of mitigate all that stress and and, and help our children to become good readers? Well, I want to start with a few things. Um, First of all, um, we all know that reading is important for kids. I think that message has gotten out there. There's a lot of research that shows that reading is important to a child's cognitive development, to their academic success. But what we're learning now is that reading is also important for things like emotional and social development, for executive function. And, you know, and this is my personal take, it also makes us better human beings. So there are lots of people out there, parents, caregivers, grandparents, who really want their kids to be readers, um, even if the parents are not necessarily readers themselves. I think that, you know, again, we sort of, the message has come through at this point that reading is a good thing. So even if you grew up not reading or you don't read yourself or English isn't your first language, we all know our kids really should read books. So what does that mean? (laughs) When you know something's important, it's stressful, and you think about milestones, and you worry because that's what parents do. So a lot of what we wanted to do with this book was to really reassure parents, um, make them realize that this is is not um, difficult. Uh, There are things that you can do that also it's not your job as the parent to teach your child how to read. That's the school's job. Your job is different. Your job is to teach kids to love to read. Um, And that's, you know, kind of changes the equation a little bit in terms of what you focus on. So if you're thinking about, like, well, I need to do this because it's really important for my child and they won't succeed um, if they don't become a reader, and sort of flip it in your mind to, I'm here to open up this really wonderful thing for my children and get them to love something that, frankly, is great and, and should be loved and cherished. That kind of changes it, and I hope takes away a little bit of the pressure. 
All of it. Yeah, I think it does. Do. First of all, you're changing the absolutely because you're changing the the motivation, I guess, for introducing kids to books. There's not that pressure, right. as you say. Well, you have to learn how to read. It's just right. another activity, right? Another right. fun activity, it or it can be a it's fun a activity. It's a fun activity, and you know, I think again, if you flip it in your brain, I think this will help you in terms of communicating with your kids. If you flip it in your brain from this is something really, really fun that I get to share with my kids, and you know, rather than thinking about it, this is something really hard and important. Because kids get that message at school, right? There's a lot of pressure and anxiety that they get at school because teachers have to make sure that kids pass standardized testing. They have their own sort of goals, and they need to make sure that all their kids in the, in the classroom are reading, especially if your kid is a little bit behind Maybe he doesn't love reading, thinks he's not good at it. Maybe he isn't good at it. Um, maybe, you know, she's in a lower group than the rest of her friends. Um, that makes them feel bad around reading. And so your job then as a parent is to kind of counteract that. Um, it's not to say that you don't support what the teacher is doing in the classroom, but your job is different, which is at home. It's to make sure that your kids still like this thing that might feel stressful to them while they're at school. And I think the other thing is, because I'm picturing it, you know, learning to read or reading at school and then reading at home, the context is so different because I know that children, when they, when you sit down and read a book with them, and you mentioned, I think earlier, it, it, it really does well for emotional development. They want to sit on your lap. There's a lot of touching and hugging, and that can be associated with the reading, which you don't have in school. That's a totally different context. So there's a lot yeah. of other stuff that goes on, right? It is. It's true. Um, for children, for babies especially, reading is a full body experience. So you are sitting on a parent's lap, you're feeling the warmth of their body, you're hearing their voice, you're getting their emotional sort of temperature. It, hopefully it's enthusiasm, it's excitement, it's pleasure. You're having time one-on-one. You are touching the book. You are smelling the book. If you're a baby and it's a board book, you might be putting the book in your mouth. You might be, if you're a toddler, lifting flaps, learning to turn the pages by yourself. It's a full sensory experience. And here's something that I think is really important to remember if you have very young children, if you have babies, which is that if you make reading part of your family's life from a very early age, Reading is something associated with pleasure and home so that when they get to school and they do feel that pressure as opposed to pleasure, they already have imprinted on them the idea that this is something that I enjoy. So you bring that that home feeling, that pleasure feeling into school as opposed to kind of working backwards where you're taking that pressure feeling and then hopefully, you know, hopefully not replicating it in the home because kids don't need to have that, you know, added amount of stress and anxiety. So what do you say to parents, busy parents, and we're assuming all parents are busy, but mother and father or father and father, mother, mother, whoever it is, comes home from work and they're exhausted and your toddler does want to sit down and read, but you just don't have the strength to do it. And you don't want to say no necessarily because that you, you know, you feel guilty about that. How do you handle those kinds of situations? Because I think families are tired. And so how do you... (laughs) Yeah. I can definitely relate. So I have three kids. They are now 10 and 12 and 14, but, you know, they still have their wants and their needs and demands. And I'm in a, uh, you know, two-parent, full-time working outside the home household. So I understand exhaustion really well. Um, and here's where I have to say, this is a little bit of work for parents. You do need to remember to, as they say in school, drop everything and read. It is really important to read aloud to your children, even if they're reading independently. Um, That doesn't mean that your job is done and that you should stop reading aloud to them. There are two factors that are really important to raising 
someone who becomes a lifelong reader. One of them, I think we know, it's read aloud to your children. Reading aloud to their, your child, it is, there are, we have a lot of tips in the book about the best way to do this. Um, there are things that you can do right and things you can do wrong. Um, and then the other thing is the number of books in the home. So make sure your house is filled with books. Make sure there are books in your bathroom. They are in your living room. They are in the room where the TVs are, where the computers are, that your child has his own bed uh, bookshelf. Um, if he shares a room, that he and his sister, they each have their own bookshelf. Um, just make sure they have a place where books are their own. When you have books around, there's never you know, a bored child because there's always something to look at and something that is not necessarily on a screen. So getting back to your question, what do you do when you're tired? I'm sorry to say you still pick up the book and you read to them. And here's one thing, benefit for you, the parent, which is that it's relaxing. It could, you know, it's relaxing to read aloud to a child. It, it calms you down, too. So a lot of this is about, you know, bringing uh, your own habits into line with what your kids are doing. If you're saying to your kids, for example, hey, phones down, screens away at 8 p.m., that means your phone. Also, um, and if you're reading aloud to your child, that's sort of forcing you to engage with books. So again, I know it feels like another thing to do on top of everything else, and you're tired. Um, but I do think that the um, the results that you get, the payoff, is worth it. Um, and your you know, book again, is divided. <laughs> in, I just want to say your book is. I just I don't mean to interrupt you, but I want to get this in because your book is divided into four stages of childhood, from babies to teens, and that's where you offer all of these practical tips, the wisdom, and everything we've been talking about now. But is there, given these four stages, is there any such thing as a bad book, like a bad book for a baby or a bad Mm -hmm. book for a middle middle school child or teenager? Or, well, you answer the question, yeah. If there's anything as a a bad book? Mm Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know, I, I hate to use terms like good books and bad books. There are books that we liked better than other books. Um, there are books that I think are kind of awful. But, you know, books are like any other art form where you learn to appreciate the good um, by also encountering the bad. You know, if every movie were great, then then it there would really be no point of comparison. Kids learn to become critical readers, judges. And what might be like a bad book to you might not be bad to your child. And I think that, again, if you are trying to encourage a leisure activity and your child has the choice of going on Instagram or playing Fortnite or watching something on Hulu or hanging out with his friends or reading a book, and you say to him, oh, that book isn't good. You should be reading this book. Um, or like, why are you reading comics, you know, to your daughter? You should be reading real books. That's a message that it's sort of saying, okay, well, you know, if you don't like what I'm reading, I'll just do, you know, I'll go online instead. Um, like, kids should be allowed to choose their own path. I mean, we did in, in our book include a lot of recommendations for books. Um, we're not necessarily saying, like, these are the best. Um, but we're saying these are ones that we really love. Um, my co-author and I both have three kids. We've both been the children's books editor of the New York Times. She still is the children's books editor. Um, we've been immersed in this world for a while. So we um, we have our own kind of preferences. And we also try to find books tailored to kids' specific interests. So you're not just looking for something according to the age and stage that your child is at in terms of reading. You're also looking for something that they will engage with. So there are books that we have listed for the post-Harry Potter slump. You know, when your kid finishes Harry Potter, sometimes they're like, well, nothing can compare to that. And they sort of, you know, get, get, get lost or, or sort of dead-ended and then just re-read Harry Potter. 
um, nothing wrong with rereading, but if you want to look for other recommendations. Or we have books that deal with things like starting at a new school, dealing with difficult emotions, books about friendship, books about family issues, so that, you know, as a parent, you're often looking for books that, that fit a particular situation so that you have titles that would work for each age and stage. But again, I do hesitate for parents to exert too much judgment on what their child is reading. If your child is reading bad books, don't worry. They'll also read good things. I grew up reading all kinds of, of you know, what we might consider bad books or trashy books. As a young child, I read Smurf comics. I then went on to read Archie comics. I read Daniel Steele novels and Sidney Sheldon. It didn't prevent me from becoming an adult who reads Toni Morrison and Edith Wharton. Well, I had I have to say I had the same experience. I I think that one of the you know reading all kinds of books, trashy books, trashy magazines. Um, my babysitters used to bring all different kinds of reading materials into the house, which I would get my hands on. Not necessarily something my parents would recommend, um, right. but it had a good outcome, which is just what you're saying. The one thing, though, I think parents get hooked into, uh, especially maybe younger parents in this generation, many of whom are in their 30s, like there is a right book to, you know, everybody should be, you know, you have to read Goodnight Moon, you have to read, you know, Shel Silverstein. Uh, they're great. I'm not saying they're bad books. They're good books. Maurice Sendek, all of those, but be a little more, I hear you say you can be a little more creative about it. You can like, what are your child, what what does your child kind of gravitate towards? Listen to that and then accommodate them, right? Yes. There are all kinds of readers, just like there are all kinds of kids and each kid can be a different kind of reader at a different time in his life or even at a different time of the day when he's in a particular mood. I mean, there are um, kids who are visual readers. There are kids who prefer comic books or graphic novels or books of, you know, photographs to long-form narratives. There are kids who prefer, you know, 101 uh, wacky facts about animals or books of baseball card statistics. There are kids who only like fantasy novels and don't want to read any realistic fiction. There are kids who like sad um, animal stories, you know, who will read Black Beauty and Where the Red Fern Grows, but do not like to read about people um, and, you know, or don't like stories that deal with sad issues with people. They're sort of comfortable with things that are at a remove. And then, you know, there are situations that change over time. I remember when my daughter was 10 years old, I introduced her to A Wrinkle in Time, which was a book that I loved when I was growing up, and she didn't like it. But when she was 11, she went back and read it and then read all four of the sequels to it and loved it. Um, And so, you know, kids change over time. And kids are just like adults in that we don't always want to read the same thing all the time. We're not always interested in literary fiction. Sometimes you want to read, you know, a domestic thriller or a good procedural or, you know, a book that's mostly visual in nature. I mean, there's a reason why Instagram is popular with adults, too. Like, we also like pictures. Um, So I think that you, you have to allow for all of those different options for your child. Now, you talk about in the book strategies to, and and I'm putting it in quotes, gamify the experience of reading to engage an emerging reader. How do you gamify it? How do you're saying somehow we have to make it or we can make it a game? What does that mean? 
Um, well, you know, I think that any parent of any <laughs> child, any age from baby on knows about gamifying because you start that, you know, when you're feeding your child peas and they don't like the peas as much as they like the sweet potatoes, you know, when you're doing the baby food thing. And so you do the wee, you know, like yeah. the peas are suddenly like a little airplane and you're gamifying eating, you know, in a way you're trying to, or you follow the peas swiftly with the carrots or vice versa. Um, so I'm not saying that you are trying to trick your kids, but you need to kind of sometimes at least introduce fun into what you're doing, and maybe there is a little bit of tricksiness in it. Um, so one example is um, with one of my three kids. Um, he was reluctant to read um, by himself, I think mostly because he really liked being read to his parents, my youngest child. So, of course, you know, wanting to be uh, the baby to a certain extent. Um, and all kids, you know, sometimes want to be the baby, sometimes want to be the big kid. And what I did was with the Elephant and Piggy books by Mo Willems, which are terrific early readers, you have two characters in each book in the series, I would say, well, who do you want to be, elephant or piggy? And he would get to pick. And then each of us would take turns and we would read each character. So that's a way to kind of gamify it. Um, Sometimes we would act it out. Um, You can do things if you have multiple kids and you want to figure out, like, gosh, I have a three-year-old and a seven-year-old, and, like, they're interested in really different books. Like, how do I work this? You can do something where the seven-year-old reads aloud to the three-year-old and, you know, gets to be the big kid and the big reader um, as opposed to when he's alone with you and you're reading um, and he's always the the younger reader. Um, Or you can... um, Do things like read uh, memorized poems with your child. You can say like, hey, you know, to your daughter, like if you memorize this, you know, very short poem, I'll memorize this longer one. You can act things out. You can, you know, turn reading. It doesn't necessarily even have to be a book. If your child is um, reluctant to read, there are games that involve reading. Monopoly is a reading game. A lot of book, a lot of board games and card games involve reading in some way. So that's still reading. Um, again, it's more about that, more about the mechanics than it is about storytelling. You can also do things, you know, one of the great things, um, with books, uh, picture books, are wordless books. And it took me a long time. I think it takes a lot of parents a while to kind of realize how great wordless books are because it can kind of feel like, wait a minute, I'm just getting pictures. This book is, you know, 1995 and, and, and all I have are pictures and there's no story. But this enables children to tell the story without having to read the words. And it's still part of learning to read because telling book stories through pictures is still sequential you know, narrative um, uh, action going on, and they can can then create the story themselves when they're reading a wordless book. And what about plays, reading plays to them and then acting it out with them? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, again, you are not the one who has to make your child force his way to sound out a word that he's having trouble with, or a girl who really doesn't like reading aloud because she feels self-conscious, um, you don't have to be the one that's teaching that. The teacher's teaching that. doesn't mean that you don't support what the t- teacher is doing in their school, but anything that you do that makes your child enthusiastic and happy around reading rather than frustrated and upset and anxious is going to help the teacher in the long run and is going to help the child in the long run with her reading. Yeah, I think it's so important what you say. I think I did that intuitively with my kids, but there was pressure from other parents. Is your, you know, I had three boys, I have three boys, but are they reading at three? Are they reading at four? Are they reading? And I used to say exactly the, I used to do 
exactly what you're talking about in terms of advice. It was sort of like, that's up to the school to teach them how to read. I'm, I'm not a teacher. I'm a social worker anyway, so I'm not going to do that. But I am going to participate in the whole reading thing, which we did a lot of reading, but not me teaching them how to read because that does put the pressure on. But you do get a lot of outside pressure from other parents. Like, mm-hmm. oh, you know, your kid's not reading yet, not reading now. Don't succumb to those kinds of pressures. Is that what you're saying? Oh, definitely. And, you know, also the science backs this up. There is no evidence that the earlier you start to read, the better reader you become. Think about shoelaces. Some kids learn to tie their shoelaces when they are four. Others still struggle with it when they are 11. Does it mean that the one who learned it at four is going to be a better shoelace tire at age 25? Absolutely not. It's in fact, you know, in in many countries in Europe, Germany and Scandinavian countries, they don't even start to introduce reading until kids are seven or eight. So there's no reason to push your child into reading at a younger age. It has no impact on how good a reader they become. And honestly, if you're teaching a child to read a three or three or a four year old or five year old to read and they are not, their brain um, isn't sort of there yet developmentally because there are a lot of components to reading. There's decoding, there's sequential, you know, there's all kinds of things that kids' brains develop at different rates. If they're not ready for it, they're going to be frustrated. And the books, frankly, that you would be reading, you know, their level of comprehension, the stories are not that interesting. Whereas if you start to read when you're seven or eight, the stories are richer, you are more mature, you're able to understand the stories richer, the process comes much more quickly, you kind of avoid all of that frustration. Now, again, you can't help it if your child is, you know, your, your, your child's school is, is saying you need to be reading in kindergarten, you're not going to be able to argue your way out of that. Um, but you should bear in mind that if they aren't, it's okay. It's okay if they don't really get it until they're in first grade or second grade. What about audiobooks? How do they fit into the picture? I think audiobooks are terrific. You know, it's another way um, to enjoy storytelling. And for kids who do have some kind of reading disability, some kind of learning disability, whether it's dyslexia or some kind of processing disorder, audiobooks are a godsend. It's a way for them to enjoy really good literature um, it's a great way to enjoy books as a family, especially if you have kids multiple ages. There are books that work for kids of all ages, whether it's, you know, Charlotte's Web or Elmer and the Dragon or the Chronicles of Narnia um, or The One and Only Ivan by Catherine Applegate. There are great stories, you know, or, or listening to Greek myths. Um, you can listen to them in the car as a family. You can have a ritual where you say, like, you know, Sunday nights we'll all gather in the living room, we'll, like, light candles, and we'll listen to a story for an hour, you know, listen to The Hobbit, Treasure Island as kids get older. I think, you know, audiobooks are a great way to enjoy books. And, you know, again, as kids get their own devices and have ear, the ear sets, get them an account where they can download audiobooks. It's a great thing for them to, to um, enjoy. It's just another way to get in books because, again, just because you're reading in one way doesn't mean you shouldn't be reading in others. Just because your child is now an independent reader doesn't mean that he or she isn't going to still enjoy being read aloud picture books by you at night or for you to continue reading aloud a chapter of Little House on the Prairie or um, you know, Lord of the Rings to them at night, whatever they might be interested in. You can enjoy books in many different forms, in many different ways, no matter where you are in terms of age and, and reading ability. Well, okay, so that's a, this sort of brings it 
brings that um, to my next question. Teenagers, you know, teenagers who are downloading books. What mm-hmm. kind of books are teenagers reading now? Or, I mean, is there, I don't know if you can generalize, but um, what are the trends in teenage reading since they're so connected to social media and all of those kinds of things and have a lot more freedom to do it? Well, one of the great things for teenagers now is that young adult literature has really taken off in a way that when I was growing up, you know, you, there just wasn't YA literature. There, the genre didn't exist. You kind of went from middle grade books, which is, you know, um, what we think of as, as classic novels, Newbery Award winning novels, um, to, you know, grown up books. It was like you went from there to Stephen King and Dean Coots and Sidney Sheldon and Danielle Steele and sort of genre fiction. Um, and there was no book, there were no books for teenagers, whereas now that whole area of publishing has exploded. And those authors are really good because they know that competition that they're getting from screens, from social media, from kids' extracurricular activities, from homework. And what they do is they write and grab you by the lapels and, you know, and grab you by your core very strong adolescent emotions on the first page with plot, with, you know, just really high emotion, and, you know, so that kids become really engaged. There are authors like John Green, who writes realistic fiction, often love stories where, you know, kids are passionate about those books to any number of fantasy and genre uh, writers who move plots along so quickly. There's a reason why a lot of grown-ups read YA. It's really good. It's highly readable. So there's that. And then another thing, you know, you mentioned downloading books. Um, What's interesting about teenagers is that they actually prefer print books to reading on a screen because they're on screens all the time. They're on screens all day long at school, increasingly for homework, then for fun with their friends. So they want to break from their screen time in the same way that we grown-ups want to break from our screen time. If you're in your office looking at your laptop all day, like, you know, we want to get home and, like, cook or garden or read a book, just do something where our eyeballs aren't attached to, you know, pixels. Um, so kids are the same way. Yeah. I, we have, like, two minutes left, and obviously I have a lot more questions to ask you, but so let's give readers the websites that they can go to so they can read the book, get because there's so much more information in the book, obviously, and websites to go to so that we, in your podcast, actually. So talk to us, give us information about that. All right, so we here are our websites. Yeah. So <clears throat> my website is PamelaPaul.com, and that's P-A-M-E-L-A-P-A-U-L.com. I'm on Twitter at Pamela Paul NYT and Facebook at Pamela Paul NYT, Instagram at Pamela Paul 2018. The New York Times Books website is nytimes slash books. And the podcast is also on that website. So you can listen there or download it from iTunes, Stitcher, or anywhere else you download your podcast. Great. Great talking to you today, Pamela Paul. Great talking to you. Yeah, great conversation. And the title of the book is How to Raise a Reader. So get out there and get the book or download it or read it however you want to read it, right? Whether you want to. Yes. Yeah. That's exactly it. I have to admit, I read. Yeah, I read. I I I travel a lot, so I I've wound up reading books on my iPhone. I, I'm not sure that's so good, but I don't have to pack up a lot of stuff. So anyway, um, have a great is, day. Reading Thanks reading. so much for being on you the too. show. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Mm-hmm. 